Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, um, no, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to ha be greeted in the ma marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and the outside will, be, will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to, be, um, to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. This is the gospel of Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you very much for that. Interesting read, isn't it? 
And I don't know if you're challenged about that, but uh, we are obviously continuing our series on the commands of Christ. And what we're looking at tonight is the command to be righteous and pure. And when we think about those two words, I wonder how often we pause and just consider ourselves before Christ and ask, are we living righteous and pure lives before Christ? And I'm not sure about you, uh, whether you have considered um, those topics, whether you've considered the Pharisees before, but I think all of us as Christians who've lived Christians for any length of time would be very familiar with this verse. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I think most of us would have heard this before and would be able to remember having it. But when we think about Scripture, when we think about the Pharisees, we very much paint a picture along the lines of what we've just read, where the Pharisees are these guys who are really abhorrent. They're really bad. They do things that are so counter to what God would have them to do. They have this legalistic way. And I think when we have that picture of the Pharisees in our minds, Perhaps it isn't that hard to have a righteousness that exceeds theirs. But when we think about who the Pharisees were, what they originally stood for, maybe we could be thinking of ourselves a little bit highly, a little bit more highly than what we actually should. And it's very clearly evident that at the time of Christ's coming, the Pharisees were some of the most powerful men that were in the religious realm at that time. There's over 100 references to them in the Bible. And uh, they emerged at a time when the priesthood was incredibly corrupt. They came to the fore at that time and they had this concern for the purity of the Jewish race. They could see that the priests weren't actually bringing the people back into line. They weren't teaching them the law. They weren't teaching them what God would have them to do. And they saw that they needed to be able to do this. And they believed that only if people returned to what God was teaching them, if they obeyed the Jewish faith and the purity of that faith, then their people would be saved. God would restore them and they'd be restored to faith. There are a number of other sects that were moving against the priesthood at the time as well. But it was the Pharisees who gained the most influence. You see, these guys were common people, for the lack of a better term. And they were the most, had the most influence in the synagogues. And I'm not sure that you're aware, but a synagogue is somewhere where the Jewish people met to worship and honour and glorify God in the villages. If there was a village and there was 20 people who were worshipping God in that place, they would create a synagogue. They would build it and they would have a Pharisee there who would proclaim claim the word to those people. All the sacrifices, etc., still had to happen back in Jerusalem, but they had their synagogue uh, out in their villages. And I've actually been in a number of the ruins of the synagogues scattered across um, Israel uh, when we went and visited there. And so these guys were the ones that actually did that in the villages. So they were very influential. And they were much liked by the people. Because see, the Sadducees, the other group that we hear about quite often in Scripture, they were powerful landowners. And corrupt priests. And so these Pharisees, they were respected and they were held in high honor and regard. And what we need to realize is that these guys were highly educated. 
They received extensive training. And they were the primary teachers of the scriptures in the villages. They were men who knew theology. They were guys who had the best apologetics to defend their faith. They were traditional honouring men. And they were conservative in their views. And they held an extremely high view of Torah. The first five books of the Bible, the law that was given uh, to the Israelites. And they only allowed people to join them to become Pharisees if they strictly obeyed those laws as well as the oral tradition that they held, the oral laws that were proclaimed as well. And they believed that God's blessing would only return to the Jewish nation if they as a people wholly turned back to God and obeyed Torah. The Pharisees believed in repentance. They believed that the Israelite nation had done a lot of wrong things and they should humbly come before God and ask for his forgiveness. And when we think of how the Pharisees were portrayed in that passage of Scripture we read earlier, I don't think many of us would be aware of what I've just spoken about. I don't think many of us would understand that the Pharisees were actually good guys. And the question is, is our righteousness actually better than them? And so the passage that we have read has got some serious challenges. And I think we need to have a look at that. And accept what it says is coming directly from God. So before we get into that, let's just pause and pray and then we'll look at three points from that passage. Father God, thank you for your presence here this evening. Thank you we've been able to worship you in song. Thank you, Lord, that we've been able to pray to you. Thank you that Holy Spirit is moving amongst us. Lord, will you allow that to continue? Father, will you just open our hearts and our minds to hear from you? Lord, there's going to be some things said tonight that some people are going to find very difficult. Father, will you allow them to put that offence aside, to, to meet with you, to, to be challenged by you and Holy Spirit, Lord. And if there is a change that needs to occur, allow them to be willing to do that. Lord, we want to know the truth of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first point I want to look at this evening, which we possibly missed in the passage that was spoken, is that Jesus says they are to respect those in spiritual authority over them. Who picked that up in the passage that we read? Interesting, hey? Because he does actually say it. He actually tells them to respect these guys. And when we consider what we know about the Pharisees and everything that Jesus has spoken about them and the ongoing battle that Jesus has with them, it's hard to come to terms with this. It's hard to believe that Jesus actually said this. But that's exactly what he says. This is what it says in Matthew 23, 2 and 3. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. So when Jesus mentions Moses' seat, imagine what these guys were thinking. This is someone that they respect greatly. This is someone who they know brought the law to the Israelite people. And so they would realize that Jesus is making a very important proclamation here when he speaks about Moses' seat. So those gathered would respect that authority. And Moses was one of these people that they would never question. And the records show clearly that he was a great man of God who spoke with God face to face. And so they would respect that. But then he refers to the scribes and Pharisees as sitting on Moses' seat. And he's making a declaration that this is the rightful place for those men to be proclaiming those words of authority. 
Now, they thought that this seat was a figurative thing, a metaphor, but recent archaeological digs have indicated this was an actual seat that was in the synagogue. And this was the seat where, once the scroll was read, that the person who was going to speak would sit on this seat. And so as he spoke, the words he spoke were considered to be of great authority. So that person would generally be the Pharisee for that synagogue or an honoured special guest. Jesus would have sat on one of those seats quite a few times as he presented the words into the synagogues. So they believe that this is an actual seat. And the thing is, the word that is being proclaimed that from that seat is expected to be obeyed. It is an authoritative word. And Jesus is scathing in his assessment of the Pharisees. And yet, he recognizes their official capacity in teaching the law. Jesus is acknowledging that while they do not live out what they teach, what they teach is sound. What they teach is direct from Scripture. And while they are accurately interpreting Scripture and teaching it the way it should be taught, those who listen should obey them. And we often miss the fact that Jesus does not deny the benefit of what the Pharisees say. In fact, their doctrine is the closest to Jesus' doctrine of any of the religious sects of the day. And that's hard to take on board as well. When we read through Scripture too, we need to realise that not all Pharisees were bad guys. Some of you would know this guy Joseph of Arimathea. And then you'd also know this other guy Nicodemus. These are the two guys who actually asked for Jesus' body and they embalmed Jesus' body and buried it, and they were both Pharisees. I think they're pretty good guys, hey? And when we read through Scripture, we get these little moments where one of the teachers of the law, a Pharisee, come to Jesus, and they have this conversation, and Jesus actually speaks highly of them because of how they've understood what Jesus has said and how they've related to that and how they are close to the kingdom of God as a result. So not all Pharisees are bad. But what we do learn is while, that, while their teaching was sound, their lives and their actions of many of them did not reflect this teaching. So Jesus' warning comes. Don't do what they do. Don't do what they do. And there are many things in this passage that the Pharisees are accused of. And this passage that we've read, is, one section is called the seven woes of the Pharisees. And I'm sure you can understand why it is called that. But basically, the things that they do wrong, the major charges boil down to just a couple of things. And we can pick that up in um, verses 4 and 5. So we'll look at those two verses separately. So the first one, Matthew 23, 4 says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger and so the Pharisees are guilty of tying these heavy burdens upon people and so many people think they understand what those heavy burdens are but I wonder if we do just in case I'll cover it back in Matthew 15 Jesus is speaking about the traditions and commandments that have been created and abused by the Pharisees and the scribes and the incident there is where Jesus is challenged by the rulers the Pharisees and the scribes, about his disciples actually eating without washing their hands. Mums, dads, your kids should still wash their hands. Wash your hands before you eat. It's a good habit. But this is what they're complaining about. And they go to Jesus and say, why is it that your disciples don't do what is right? Why don't they follow the commandments? 
And the thing is, a lot of these oral commandments that the Pharisees and scribes have created have circumvented the very commands of God. And the one that Jesus throws back to them is about how God says, honor your mother and father. And the Pharisees made this rule. It was an oral tradition where if you pledge what you have to the church, well, then you don't have to honor your mother and father. You don't have to look after them in their old age because you have pledged what you have to the church. And it was a way of getting around that responsibility. And so they made their oral tradition stand up above God's command. Anyone see a problem with that? And this is the type of thing that they, was do they were doing. And so at the end of that discussion Jesus has with them in Matthew 15, verses 7 and 9 says this, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, The people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. So this is something that they have created, which they have elevated above the very commands of God, and told people they must obey. And so what they've done is take a good principle, which perhaps people should follow, but they've made it something that must be obeyed, something that was elevated above the very word of God. For those of you who don't know, we know about the Ten Commandments, but these guys, all up, there was about 613 laws that they expected people to follow. Could you imagine what that would be like? So when the burdens were tied upon people, this is what they're talking about. They had these 613 laws to follow, and some of them were really stupid. I suppose I shouldn't really say that. I got to Israel. We arrived in Jerusalem. We were very weary, and we arrived at our hotel. And the guy who was our tour guide said, guys, guys, just wait, wait. There's something I've got to tell you. I know you're tired. I know you want to go to your room, but please listen. You'll appreciate it. And we're like, yeah, what's that? And they said, do not use the Sabbath lift. We'd arrived on the Sabbath in Jerusalem. He said, do not use the Sabbath lift. And we're like, what, because we're Gentiles? So, you know. He said, no, no. You see, the Sabbath lift... Um, there's a Gentile lift, use the Gentile lift because, you know, the Sabbath lift, um, the doors open on every floor. They open for three to five seconds, then they close, and they go to the next floor and open for three to five seconds and close and go to the next floor because pushing the button is working. So, yeah, we took the Gentile lift. And I'm standing there in my delirious state. It's like, really? It's like, wait, 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 wait. Are we eating tonight? And they're like, oh yes, yes, there'll be food. It's like, who prepares the food? They're like, oh, we employ Palestinians to do that. <laughs> Go figure. But uh, this is how crazy this stuff was. And that's modern day. Like, it, it is just nuts. But this is some of the type of things that they were enforcing upon people. And they honestly believed that this oral law that they proclaimed, this oral tradition, was something that was straight from God. Never heard anyone say anything like that these days, hey, that their law or whatever they're saying straight from God is... Yeah, anyway, we won't go there. But the ongoing obligation and expectation that they laid upon people to obey all these laws was an incredible burden. An incredible burden. Think about that guy who was paralysed and he's laying on his mat and Jesus says, you know what, get up, pick up your mat, go home on the Sabbath. And this guy's walking along. Everyone knew who this guy was. All the religious leaders knew who he was. And suddenly this guy who couldn't walk is walking and their first response is, hey dude, why are you carrying the mat? Who said you could do that? It's the Sabbath. It's just crazy. And that's what these guys were like. 
And they were so focused on the law. They were so focused on maintaining and enforcing these 613 laws and any others I'm sure they could slot in that they missed this incredible movement of God amongst them. They missed God in the flesh. They missed Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Who knows what a phylactery is? Good on you, cup, yep, but you've studied, that's cheating. My wife said I should make one tonight, this wide. Yeah, I didn't do that. This is a phylactery. You see the little boxes that are on the guys' heads. That's, that's what's called the phylactery. And you'll see this incredibly spiritual guys also have the binding on their arm and their hands. This is modern day. This is actually at the Wailing Wall. Uh, you can see the barrier behind. And if you look up the top, you can just see faces. They're all the tourists behind. So the Wailing Wall is behind whoever photographed this. And uh, so these guys have their prayer shawls, which are um, pulled up over their heads to pray. They're quite okay. But you can see the tassels hanging down. Now, now the tassels are quite within scripture. That's what they were told to do. They had a white tassel with a blue thread through it. And it was meant to be down to about here so that they could actually walk along and they could feel that. It would remind them to pray to God. Not a bad thing. And also these phylacteries, I don't know why they went with the phylacteries, but the phylacteries have these passages of scripture from Exodus 13 and Deuteronomy. And uh, the thing was, what... Jesus is speaking against. They had these phylacteries. The passage of scripture that they had in there talks about binding up the word upon their head and upon their arm. That's what all of those verses say, four of them. So in the box on their head, they've got four verses. They only do one on their arm. And what Jesus is criticizing is these phylacteries went from being about this big to slowly getting broader and broader. And it was an expression of holiness. You know, if people could see how big my phylactery was... Yeah, I don't know how they'd equate that to being holy. But anyway, that, that was the thought. And some of these guys got so crazy with their tassels, they were actually dragging on the ground. And again, they thought, you know, if I have these long tassels, people will say, wow, isn't he holy and spiritual? What would you guys think if I walked up on stage with tassels dragging on the ground? Did his mother help him dress tonight? I don't think so. What is that? But the thing is, they, they do wear these today. Most, most Jewish people will have even what I'm wearing now, and then you'll see the tassels hanging down because it's an undergarment, and they will have those. But generally, it's okay. But the, the thing was, they were making a statement with it. It was absolutely nuts that these things would drag along the ground. So all that these guys did was so that people would look at them and think that they were holy, think that they were doing something great. And everything they did was not to please or serve God, but it was to be seen by men. This was the transition that occurred. They started off in a good place, but suddenly it was like, you know what? We can have name badges. And uh, people recognize me for who I am. I'm a holy man. And I'm honoring and worshiping and glorifying God. And Jesus says, you know what? Don't be like him. Don't do that. Be humble. That's his call to all believers. He calls us to be humble. And there's this incredible tension for us if we're going to be obedient to God. When we consider the ways of the Pharisees, they were self-serving. They lived for the praise and recognition of men. And what is clearly evidenced in Scripture is that for all those people who did that, for all those people 
who appeared to be doing righteous work, when all they were seeking was the attention and recognition of others, they'd received their reward in full. And Matthew 6 2 tells us that. It's speaking about giving to the needy and those who give so that others hear that they're giving are told they have received their reward in full. And Matthew 6 5 says the same about those who pray to be heard by others so that people will know how spiritual they are. Again, they have received their reward in full. And the passage we're focusing on this evening says this, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says that we, none of us, are to be called rabbi or teacher. And we need to understand this in context because if we think about Paul, Paul himself says that he is a father. Paul himself says that he is a teacher. And so this is about those who cherish or value these titles. In fact, those who demand these titles, those who say, you know, when you introduce me, Pastor Charlie, please. If you ever hear me say that, I'm either joking or I need you to slap me up the side of the head. Seriously. I need to get over myself. But you know, you have met people like this. And it's a talking about these people who think more highly of themselves and demand titles and authorities that exalt themselves before men. It's got nothing to do with serving God. And it's from the pastors down to the newest Christians. We're all on a level playing field. And each of us should have an attitude of servanthood. You know, I met this guy once, and uh, it was really interesting. He was the right reverend, whoever he was. It was many, many years ago, so this guy's not a right reverend anymore, because I can only be a right reverend for three years. And uh, he insisted when I introduced him to the next guy. He's like, no, 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 that's right. Reverend Gary Brown. It's like, hey, Brendan, meet me, mate, Gary. No, 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 it's right, Reverend Gary Brown. It's like, yeah, right. So is everyone else wrong? <laughs> Seriously. It is a title, I know. But when people demand it, please get over yourself. It's really not that important in God's eyes. It gets back to honouring ourselves rather than God. God's way is the way of humility, the way of servanthood. And that is how each and every one of us honours God with our lives. Jesus says the greatest among us will be our servant. And the world standard is that the greatness is measured by how many people follow you. You know, it's incredible, these people that run these huge courses and conferences and things like that. And their success is measured by how many people are sitting in those stadiums. But our Creator turned that on his head, didn't it? Didn't he? You know, when you think about Jesus, he didn't come to be served. He came to be the servant of all and to show us a better way, his way, the way things should be. And so tonight's all about having a righteousness greater than the Pharisees. And I hope you've learned a little bit about Pharisees and the righteousness that they did have at one stage. But the question is, what does that look like for us today? Jesus said that the Pharisees honour God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. He also said that what they do 
they do to be acknowledged by men. And the question is, are we any different? We rarely consider seriously that we may be just like them. Here's a few things I'd like you to think about. You believe that showing up at church on Sunday is enough. And as we learnt, you know, the Pharisees love adhering to oral laws. So the one thing that we say today is that Christians go to church. So there's a whole heap of people who believe that they don't need to be transformed by the power of God. Their lives don't need to show any change outside of this church building. They believe that coming to church is enough. They just need to have this appearance that they're following Christ. You talk about what you oppose, not what you stand for. These are people who love to tell others about things that are damaging in the church, things that are damaging about other people, things that are damaging to the world. And, you know, within the church, we know the wicked and evil things that happen. There's people here who drink. There's people here who smoke. There's people here who curse and swear. Some of the girls, they wear short skirts. You're laughing, haven't you seen them? Some people hold hands before marriage. I know, I know, incredibly hard to believe. But did you have a confession to make? But you know what? There's all these trivial things that people go on about. And they speak about these things. And you know what? If you nail them down and say, have you ever spoken to anyone about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? I wonder what their answer would be. And so they're majoring on the minors. They're majoring on things that when it comes to eternity really do not matter. And they're not even focusing on the one thing that God has told them to do. Rule of thumb. I'm getting ahead of myself actually. I'll leave that go. I'll use the rule of thumb on the next one. Here's the next one. You believe God needs you. Have you ever met those people who believe the church would not survive without them? Have you met those people who think their ministry is the greatest thing and, you know, like the church just has to have it. There's no way the church can avoid it. And uh, if they don't have it, there's going to be serious problems. I mean, really. You know what? I'll give you a wake-up call. If the God you worship needs a mere mortal for his church to survive... You're not worshipping the God I worship. My God's much bigger than that. And you know, when my God says he's going to build his church, he doesn't need to use Charlie Harrison to do that. He doesn't need to use any man to do that. He has had so many people oppose his church. There's so many who've tried to destroy Christianity in this world. And yet when he says, I will build my church, guess what? He builds his church regardless of what is left. And yes, he delights in having us as a part of that. He takes great joy and pleasure when we submit to him and his will. And he wants to use us, but he really doesn't need us. He can do it on his own. And you know, when I was a young fella, 
I was waiting for someone to say, you are a young fella. Anyway, when I was a young fella, I was in retail. And I was in retail clothing. I just absolutely love clothing. And I thought I was going to rise to the top. I was going to end up being the company director. I was going to be absolutely awesome. And I was quite proud of my achievements and how great I was. And I used to tell people how much I'd achieved and how I was moving forward and things like that. And I had this guy who was a bit of a mentor to me. I was never seriously mentor but this guy was a bit of a mentor and he was asking me about my work and I told him and he was like huh and he got up and disappeared we were at his house and it was like hey, that's interesting he come back with a bucket the bucket had water in it and he said stick your fist in there I was like really yes yes stick your fist in there so I tucked my tie in so you know I didn't get my tie in the bucket and I had to I mean, come on, what's this all about? So I stick my fist in. And he goes, now pull it out. I pull it out. He goes, see the hole that's left? I said, there's no hole there. He goes, exactly. Bit harsh, eh? But seriously, if you think you're irreplaceable, remember that. Changed my life. I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Your rule of thumb here. Play your part, but don't think too highly of yourself. You're really not that important, and neither am I. You don't repent because you don't need to. I think this is one of the most damaging attitudes in our church today. When I say our church, I'm not talking about just us. I'm talking about church as a whole. So many think that they don't need to repent. They haven't done anything that they should repent of. They're pretty much on track to being all that God ever intended them to be. They're pretty much doing everything that God has called them to do. And when we think about it, repentance involves humility. Repentance involves, you know, being vulnerable. Repentance involves perhaps coming forward and kneeling here, which would show weakness. And we don't want people to think we're weak, do we? God calls us to repent. It's a continual, ongoing attitude of humility and submission to him and his authority. And it happens when we allow ourselves to be continually refined by God and his word. You know, we make that first step of faith. You'll hear me say this again and again. That's our justification. When we're put back into right relationship with him, that's not what Christianity is all about. I was saved. Then we come to our sanctification, and this is our daily decisions to say, you know what, I'm going to put to death my old self, and I am going to live for Jesus each and every day. Each and every day. Lord, you and me, what are we going to do today? That's sanctification. That's being put aside and being made holy. I am being saved. And you know what? We're going to get to a stage where we don't need to repent because we're going to be standing face to face with our Lord and Saviour in glory. I will be saved from death. And when I stand in his presence, that's the only time I'm going to be perfect. No more sin, no more heartache, no more pain. But until that day, the expectation is that I will repent of my sinful attitudes. And you know, the greatest sinful attitude, just take the two commandments that we're given. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If anyone here is living that perfectly, please let me know because I'd love some tips and pointers. And if you're not living up to that expectation, guess what? You have to repent when you fail. You have to keep coming back to Christ and asking him to forgive you for not meeting the needs of your neighbours, for not speaking into the situation that he prompted you to, for not loving God as much as you should. There's no other option. 
when we think we don't sin, we lie to ourselves and deceiving ourselves. We all sin. This last one's touching. We boldly proclaim homosexuality, sex before marriage, promiscuity is sinful and you shouldn't do it. And anyone that comes into this place is going to be told that. And yet we go home and we watch movies that promote such things. I am so frustrated with the attitude of people who allow garbage to come into their lives and yet they think that it's going to allow pure output. You know, when that Fifty Shades of Grey came out, all these young women that were reading that and saying what a great book it was, I had to have people hold me back. I just, I really wanted to slap them up the side of their head. Maybe I should have just got a big Bible and hit them with that. But seriously, how can we say that type of thing is good and beneficial to us? How can we say this garbage that we're allowing coming? I should have added senseless violence to this as well. How is that beneficial to our walk with Christ? Think about some of the games that we play too. It's crazy. And yet we say that we honour God and we're allowing that garbage to come in through those forms of medium. Modern day Pharisees. We watch these movies that glorify these things. These other attitudes and lifestyles that we know oppose the teaching of our God. And yet, we watch them. We tell others how great they are. Some of us think more of those movies than we think of our God. When we think about how we're supposed to live before our God, we think about what the Pharisees were like. In Mark chapter 14, we have this story of Jesus talking about how he's soon to be betrayed. And Jesus says to his 12 disciples, one of you will betray me. And you know the incredible thing for me out of this story, each one of those disciples said, is it I? And we have these guys who spend so much time with Jesus who recognize within themselves the potential to betray Jesus. And tonight, that's the question I want you to ask. Is it I? I, I just want you to lay yourselves bare before the Lord and say, Father, in the midst of all of this, is this me? A am I like this? And when we think about this chapter 23 that we've been reading, chapters 21 and 22 is this incredible petition by Jesus to try and get the Pharisees to repent and come around and realize he is Messiah. He has come to save them. He wants to love them. He wants to give them life and life to the full. He wants to give them life eternal. And they've decided to reject them. And so Jesus just lays it all bare in chapter 23. And the thing is, Jesus was calling them to repentance. And that's what he's calling us to today. Is it you? Is it me? And if it is, 
Are we willing to repent? Are we willing to ask the Lord's forgiveness? The outside of the cup is clean. Is the inside of the cup clean? That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. And he paints this graphic image that they would have had about the whitewashed tombs. And the tombs that they had, they, they, they had these walls and they had these doors. The, the stones were about this high that rolled away. And they would paint the outside, they'd be pure white. But when you went inside, you know, they had these little areas where bodies would be layered. And those bodies would decay. And once they were decayed, about 12 months later, they'd go back in and they'd gather those bones. And they'd put them in a box in the middle of this tomb. And so it was a vile place. It was a dirty place. And that's what he's saying. From the outside, these tombs look beautiful. They're whitewashed. But inside, they're filthy. They're full of disease. And Matthew 23, 37, gives us the heart of Christ in the midst of this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. That's what Jesus wants for you tonight. He wants to gather you under his wings. He wants you to acknowledge and recognize your need for forgiveness. He wants to forgive you, but he needs you to repent. I'm going to pray. We'll invite the worship team back up. And guys, I'd love to pray with you. I really would. Don't, don't walk out of here tonight if God's called something, place something upon your heart. Come forward. Let us pray for you. There'll be celebrations in heaven as a result. Let's just pray. Father God, I thank you for this word tonight. I thank you, Lord. That it's a challenging word, Lord. It challenged me, and, and it, it's a difficult word, Lord. But we want to live righteous and pure lives for you, Lord. We want to honor you with everything that we do. So, Lord, I pray by power of Holy Spirit, you'll continue to move in this place tonight. The people will be challenged by you. The people will want to change their lives so they can move closer to you, Lord. That they'll realize that this isn't about them. This is about you. And that, Lord, they don't need to be embarrassed. They don't need to worry about those around them. This is something they're doing before you. Father, I get back to that question, is it I? I pray each person will be able to earnestly ask that tonight and seek you for an answer. Are we betraying you with how we live? Are we living lives like Pharisees? Or are we honoring you? Help us to do the right thing, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.